Thank you. So we are glad you're here. And uh, if you're new to us, uh, we like to always review kind of where we've been. So I don't ever want to leave anybody behind. Um, we've been, we started 1 Samuel beginning in January, beginning this year. We're walking through, we are finishing 1 and 2 Samuel. It's, we're, it's taken us about a year to do this. And um, we walk through verse by verse. There may be a few verses I paraphrase because we're covering the back half of chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, and then we're going to cover the uh, entire chapter of 19. And so um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. But let me go ahead and uh, catch you up to speed. So if you're walking in brand new and you, you don't know what's about to happen, grab a hold of what I'm about to say. This is, a, this is important. If I lose you here, I'm going to lose you all the way through. David... It was king of Israel, and uh, he was, he'd been through a lot, that's an understatement, to become king of Israel, a bunch. As he's king of Israel, he had a son, we well, had many children, but one of his sons, Absalom, was one who <clears throat> overthrew David. He not only overthrew David, he kicked David out. David had to leave in the middle of the night with Jerusalem on fire, a full civil war uprising, and then Absalom... His, not only did David lose his throne to his son, but now his son wants to kill him. It's not enough that David's in exile. Absalom says, I want to I kill my dad. And so David knows this. David knows that there is an army that's about to pursue him and kill him. Now keep in mind, David's also despondent and has to be depressed. And, because think about this. It wasn't just Absalom. It was other commanding generals. There were tens of thousands of soldiers that revolted. There were citizens that revolted. Can you imagine the feeling of ungratefulness? Of you poured your life, you sacrificed your life into a people that now have absolutely no care for you. That now absolutely want to kill you. And so David, in this region, hiding in this area, has been subject to insults. He's been subject to um, rumors. He's looked around and like, well, where's this person? Where's this person? Why didn't they come? Why didn't they come? And then with a continual threat that Absalom is moving against you and is trying to kill you. Absalom um, is devising a plan. David sends a spy. A spy goes to the city where... Absalom is from David's camp and convinces Absalom to move his army into this wilderness, into the woods. The army of Israel didn't fight too well in wooded terrain. They fought very well in open areas. And as a matter of fact, they would choose slopes where maybe Philistine chariots couldn't gather enough momentum to get up to them. They had a strategy in how to fight. The wilderness was not it. The wilderness was not what you would imagine uh, what we have uh, now you walk through a park. The underbrush was incredible. The underbrush there was thorny, thistly, uh, just a lot of vines. And sure enough, the army of Israel, this massive army, is moving in on David and his loyal men, numbering in the thousands. David kicks into speed right away and becomes king again. He starts ordering commanders and army commanders and leaders of thousands and leaders of hundreds. And he says, you're going to take a third of the army here. You're going to take a third of the army. I'm going to lead the charge. All of a sudden, David, in the midst of having nothing, rises up and says, I'm going to fight. He becomes just, I mean, he's David of old. And so the men look at him and say, David, you can't go anywhere. If they get you, everything's over with. You're worth uh, 10,000 of us. Are, are, don't, don't compare to what you offer. 
David go to the rear of the line. So David goes back to the garrison he was staying in, in a friendly city. And he was staying in, he stayed in this garrison of probably, I'm sure, a couple hundred, few hundred men for, uh, for defensive measures. Meanwhile, Absalom and his army move in on David. And sure enough, David's army wins. David gave implicit instruction, explicit instructions. He said very clearly, do not harm my son Absalom. And so Absalom's move, army moves in. 20,000 men are killed in the army of Israel alone. Absalom is being chased and pursued and gets caught up in the underbrush loses his mount he's riding on, is caught in the thistles. You can imagine this man who's described as good-looking and long-flowing hair from head to toe. The man was, they, they, they said, it was a remarkable specimen of humanity. And this man now is caught bleeding, <laughs> entangled in these, th- in the, in these thorns. The, a soldier of Israel sees it, panics, runs to Joab. That's the name I want you to remember. Joab is the commander of the army of Israel runs to Joab and says, Joab, Absalom is stuck. He, he said, and Joab says, you didn't kill him? He says, are you kidding me? You know the, the order we got not to touch him. I'm not going to harm him. And so Joab runs up, and sure enough, there he is. Joab throws a few spears into, into Absalom and kills him, and then Joab's 10 armor bearers get around and start slinging um, arrows into him and other spears. And absolutely kill Absalom. Even though Joab knew the order was do not harm Absalom. Is everybody with me? All right, now kicking off in chapter 18, verse 19. Um, this is where we pick up. Then Ahimez, and forgive me if I, if I skip the son of these kind of things um, just for time's sake because we have a lot of scripture. Then Ahimez said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of the enemies. Okay, I'm going to break down a lot of these verses and, and explain, but, but you have to remember, Jimenez uh, is a runner. This is, this is not unusual. A runner would have, would have taken off to deliver the, the news. So Jimenez steps up and says, let me, let me deliver the news, verse 20. And Joab said to him, you're not going to carry this news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, doesn't even give him by name, just a Cushite. He says, go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimez, the same guy, he steps back and he says again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing you will know how you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Amimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So what's happening here? Amimez is a runner. That's what he does. He's a messenger. There have been three primary ways of communicating in warfare. Drums would have indicated troop movements. So drums were very effective. It wasn't just a, as a precursor to battle. A drum would have, beat would have indicated forward or retreat. And then to, that would have communicated with your immediate um, group of soldiers. To communicate to the next group of soldiers, you would have sounded a trumpet, a shofar. You would have sounded something that would have echoed. Thirdly, when you're out of visual or audible sense, you would have a runner. The runner, these were not just like, oh, I think I'm going to be a runner today. These were the fastest. These, were the, these, these guys could run quicker than anybody. This was not just done in this culture. This was done 
throughout warfare and society of all different cultures. Ahimez is the runner. This man steps in and says, I've got it. Let me go and take the news. Joab must have really liked this runner because he looked at him. He said, you're not taking this message. You know, King David has no problem with killing any messenger with bad news. You're about to run up to him and tell him his son is dead. He said, you don't want to take this message this day. And so Joab looks over at this guy, a Cushite. What's a Cushite? It's actually a partial, partially African tribe that was loyal to David. And he looked over at a Cushite, a very fast runner, and said, you go. And the Cushite steps right in. You're about to see how loyal this guy is in just a minute. And the Cushite takes off. Well, him as the runner is just like, this is my role. This is my responsibility. Let me do it. And Joab says, well, if you want to do it, go. But David's killed messengers before. And so they take off. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof by the gate of the wall. And when he lifted his eyes, he looked. and He saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, then there is news in his mouth. And he drew near and near. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez. And the king said, he's a good man and he comes with good news. What does that mean? Go back to verse 26. It says, the, watch, um, the watchman saw another man running and the watchman called out. And, and D- David said, see another man running alone. This is good news. What did he mean by that? Typically what would happen is a fo- you would see, and it's not unusual to have a backup runner in case the first runner got killed. The, the one runner running means more than likely there's victory. What would be the opposite of one runner? A lot of runners. You know what that means? It's called a rout. That means it's not good. If he'd have seen a lot of men coming, it would have immediately known we've been routed. He sees one runner. And did you notice in verse 27, this is interesting, if you don't mind me kind of looking at these kind of things, it says, um, uh, the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez. This would have meant because Ahimez had a certain stride probably. They would recognize him. I mean, certain runners, James, I remember it was the first time I saw you run. It was like, you were flailing around every. I wasn't even a run. You were a cross country guy. I'm like, what is he doing? You know, and uh, but you have a certain style, right? And so you reckon. So the watchman would have known the style of this runner, and so he is running with the news. Um, verse 28. Then Ahimez, he cries out to the king, "All is well," and he bowed before the king with his face to the earth, and he said, "Blessed be the Lord your God." who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord my king. Did you, are you catching this, by the way? Pretty eloquent way of like, The runner gets here goes, blessed be the Lord our God who delivered you to this day. Doesn't mention anything about the son. What's the very first question David asks? Verse 29, the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimez answered, might as well have said Ahimez lied, I'm not telling you there's guaranteed proof, but you know, you have to know that the leader of the army that was trying to kill you is dead, and you know that probably Joab killed him. So Ahimez has probably had a long time to run. The patriotism, the zealousness, the 
The adrenaline is worn off. Now he's thinking as he's running, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm about to get killed. And so he answers, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion. I don't really know what it was. And the king said, okay, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. Now what about that first runner? Where is he? The Cushite. They took two different paths, by the way. As a matter of fact, in other historical references, it actually reads, when the Cushite got there, he looked at him and he said, what are you doing here? So it's really interesting. The Cushite is taking another route. The runner would have known all the different quickest and safest routes. Behold, verse 31, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for the Lord, my king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king doesn't miss a beat. He says this the very first question. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. This, I want you to picture this loyal man of African descent looking, kind of an African, Middle Eastern descent, looking at the king with no shame, hiding no truth and saying, he's totally opposite than the professional runner. He looks at him, he says, may anyone who ever raises their hand end up just like that man. Why was he speaking to King David this way? Because he was loyal to David. And this is what he knew, loyalty. David should know loyalty, but the situation is David's unlike any other king we've ever seen in Israel. David, watch how many times he says, my son, Verse 33, the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is is remarkable. This is David who was pursued by Absalom to be killed. He had taken over his throne and David is weeping over his son Absalom. Does not mention one time, we won. My throne is back. Everything's going to be fine. He doesn't mention any of this. Now we go into chapter 19. It was told to Joab, who is the commander of the army member, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole, watch this verse, the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. Okay, this is not good. What became one of the greatest military victories has now turned into an absolute moral defeat. The the, the army has been told, what was David's reaction? He's upset about his son being killed. Forget, by the way, that you had thousands of, of loyal men who died under David. It, David, Joab is being told this. You're like, Joab, you're the commander of the army. We should be having a victory parade. We should be marching back into Jerusalem with every bit of pride, banners flying, drums beating, and instead our men are walking in as if they're guilty. It said they stole into the city, almost like somebody who steals something and just kind of secretly walks away, hoping nobody notices. The army is coming back into the city thinking, what's happening? Verse four, the king covered his face. The king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. By the way, he's in an absolute place of grief. Nobody's here to judge 
his view of the grief of, of losing his son. This was the apple of his eye. This was, this was the one. This was the one who was going to take over. This is the one who was going to do great. Now he's dead. He has to be reflecting. What have I done in life that caused this? This is what parents do all day long. What did I do? What have I done? When in fact, sometimes it's nothing that you've done. It's a path Absalom took. But Joab, the army commander, is about to do something. He's about to have an intervention. He's about to rebuke. And keep in mind, this is the king of Israel. He's about, watch how he speaks to him. Watch how Joab is about to walk into King David. And watch how he speaks to him. All right, here we are. Um, verse 5. <clears throat> then Joab came into the house of the king, and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. If you made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you, for today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be happy and you would be pleased. Now watch this verse here. Now, therefore, go out, speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. I mean, he, he basically looks at him. Did you catch verse five? Go back to verse five. Did you see how many times he says, um, you shame the faces of your servants who have this day died or saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and your wives and your concubines. These men didn't have to fight for you. They died for you, some of them, fighting for you and everything that was yours. And then he says this, and you, you hate those who love you, and you love those who hate you, and had Absalom been alive and we were all dead, you'd be happier. And he says, so as much as I live and the Lord lives, if you don't go out there right now and apologize and greet your men, then every calamity you've ever had in your life is going to be nothing compared to what's going to happen to you. That's not an idle threat. Joab is a very powerful military leader. What does David do? The king of Israel has just been spoken to by the military leader. What does he do? <laughs> well, verse 8, the king got up. He took a seat at the gate, and the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate. And all the people came before the king. It says, Now Israel had fled every man to his home. Um, and so all the people came before the king. And when it says that all these people came together... And now if we start getting a little, too, a little bit more um, deeper explanation of some things, it says, now Israel had fled every man to his home. What does that mean? So again, whenever, I always encourage you, some of you have a conviction not to write in the Bible, and that's okay. I just, I have some that I write in and I circle, and that would have been one that I would like, what does that mean? Every man of Israel fled to the home. Israel is recognized at this time as 10 tribes. Judah and a neighboring tribe, very loyal to David. This kind of known as they were the money tribe. They were the royal tribe. The rest were regal, the regality and the regalness came from, the royalty came from. There was, they didn't get along. So the southern tribes and the 10 northern tribes just, they didn't get along all the time. And th these 10 northern tribes were known as Israel. And Israel fought for Absalom. 
And so what happens? Every man's going to his home. They're all defeated. Every man's going. And meanwhile, Judah, Judah is, 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 is making arrangements with David. And all of a sudden, they start talking back and forth and, and making negotiations. Well, other tribes are getting jealous. You and I, living in America in 2019, we really don't know much about fractional or factional politics and tribalism. If you were to go to any country in the world of, you know, this developing, you are going to see countries wrecked with fractional tribalism. Uh, you would go to the Middle East, Shiite, Sunni, Kurdish, you're going to see those kind of breakups. You're going to go to Sudan, the Dinkas don't get along with this group. You're going to go to, um, we saw in India in 1947 when it was given over an autonomous country, what you saw the... Um, the Hindus and the Muslims that became the Pakistanis and the Indians. Now keep in mind, this goes on even in myopic places of just a small five-mile square area where one village doesn't talk to another village. You're born of who you are, that's who you are. When Marshal Tito ran Yugoslavia, it was a country now, I think, split up of five different nations. Once Yugoslavia is now like what, Croatia, um, Serbia, these different countries, they started going to war. They'd been a country, but as soon as their, their leader died, they, I mean, they, tens of tens of thousands of people died. This was only 15, 20 years ago. The fractional and factional politics are real. In Israel, if we're not careful, we can make this this real colorful Smurf-like scene to say, David has retaken Israel. He, you know, Absalom's gone. He marches back into Jerusalem. All is well, but that is not the case. The, case, the, the fact is, they're battling each other. Um, there, there's verses 9 through 15. For time's sake, let me just go ahead and paraphrase it if I could. 9 through 15, they go back and forth with each other, and the tribes are arguing against each other. David hears this. Judah's stepping up, the tribe of Judah, pouncing her chest and saying, this is who we are. This is, this is a... We, we, we should be at the lead of everything. We were loyal. The other tribes are saying no. And then David does something remarkable. He steps in and makes this, there's a man called Amasa. Amasa was the leader of the army of Absalom. He's, the, he's Joab's equivalent. Everybody with me on that one? He makes Amasa the commander of the army of Israel. David looks at him and says, you, you can imagine this Amasa guy, right? He was the commander of the army trying to kill David. He calls him in and he says, um, yeah, you, you're going to be the leader of my army. What? Wait a minute. What's Joab's position? No, Joab's being demoted. Now, why is Joab being demoted? There's two thoughts. Number one, he killed his son. He was given orders. David finally got, he, he, he knows Joab killed him. Secondly, he's negotiating with these other tribes. Okay, you guys fought loyally under this Amasa, right? He was your commander. Well, I'm going to now make him commander over my army. This, this sounds unheard of. Why would he do this? Because he's, he's smart. He's sharp. David brings in a new commander. Joab steps down into a lesser position and they're starting to bring the fraction, the, the, the different factions that are fractured together. So what, 
again, I can't stress to you enough, this is going on over a period. We're reading it in a period of minutes. This is going on over months. And history, as much as I love history, people always ask, why do you like history so much? Why do you read old books on history so much? It's because I'm reading a lot deeper than what I've ever been taught. So when we're taught, like, you know, you go to Disney World, there's this kind of deification of history of, like, well, Independence Hall in 1776, July 4th, somebody walked out with a declaration and said, we are free of the King of England. And from that moment on, everybody in the tricorn hats grabbed a musket, marched on New York, and we won the war. Well, it wasn't that simple. This, the, this war went on over the course of years, went over like 15 years. There were towns and cities that didn't, weren't even loyal to each other and fell back and forth in their allegiances. Our greatest general up till, well, when Washington stepped in as commander-in-chief was Benedict Arnold. What did he do? He changed sides and wore a red uniform. You went up to Philadelphia that, oh, well, that's the independent city. That city was 60 or 70% loyalist to the king. Oh, by the way, the whole time we're telling the king where he could go, the king was in an insane asylum and never even had an idea what the United States was doing because, we're, because he wasn't even capable of thought. But if you look at history, oh, well, we fought against the king, we won, he must have been sad, <laughs> and we got our beautiful flag that we have. It wasn't that simple at all. And in this case, David just didn't walk back in. He had to negotiate. I'm going to make a new commander of the army. You're, you're going to be with me. And now he's going to do what kings do when they've been wronged. He's going to meet with people that messed with him. He's going to meet with people and he's going to call a court and people are going to have to give an explanation. But what's about to happen is typical of the unpredictability of David. What happens in um, verse 16? Okay. Um, verse 16, and Shimei, the Benjamite from Barum, wherever that is, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. All right, let me break this down. Go back to verse 16. Um, again, thank you for being a church, by the way. We can go verse by verse by verse. I really appreciate that. I hope, and sometimes you're thinking, well, it'd be nice to get some quotes and some points in here. We are a Bible teaching verse by verse church, and we just let the Holy Spirit move. We'll land the plane with some application. Don't worry. But, but I want to get you a picture here. Shimei, if any of you remember Shimei, a couple of weeks ago, he was the rich guy who owned the land where David was, was trekking through when he was escaping Jerusalem, and he was throwing rocks at David, and he was yelling at him. He was like, I mean, he was calling him a loser. Look at you. You have nothing. You were once a king. You have nothing. He's throwing rocks, hurling insults, and David's like taking pebbles from this guy. This, I mean, this guy is wealthy landowner. He says, yeah, my king in Israel now, your son, that's my king. He says, you're worthless. One of David's men at that moment girds his sword and says, let me take off his head just for even looking at you. And David's like, no, don't, just let him talk. I deserve everything he's saying, and he lets him live. Well, now, who's your daddy, right? <laughs> the king of Israel has said, uh, Shimei can come. And so Shimei arrives. He brings 1,000 men with him. Why? We have no idea. Two thoughts. 
He could have brought them for safety. He could have brought them as witnesses to go, you're not going to kill me in front of a thousand men, are you? But he could have brought them to say, I'm bringing a thousand loyal men. At any rate, Shimei walks in. Did you notice it says, um, uh, he come, go down to the next verse, 17. This is all being done, last words here, rush down to the Jordan before the king. He is not even back in Jerusalem. David is not back. He is still in the, the territory he was hiding out in. He's, he's about to go, he's on the banks of the River Jordan. He has this gigantic tent set up where it would have been his royal court. So this is all en route to Jerusalem. Here comes Shimei. You can imagine a man just stammering through, walking through. And meanwhile, oh yeah, next in line is Ziba. That's a loyal servant that David entrusted to take care of somebody. He's next. I want to talk to you next. He looks at Shimei, and he says here, uh, 18. Uh, am I right? Yeah, eight, oh, 17, I'm sorry. And with him were a thousand men. Okay, verse, verse, verse 18, I'm sorry. They crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Basically saying they'll do anything he wants. And Shimei fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And the king said to him, or he said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how I did you wrong in that day to my Lord, the king who left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet the Lord, my king. So he's basically saying, I don't take, please don't remember what I said. I'm so sorry. He is groveling. He is on his knees. He is begging. Keep in mind that royal court we're talking about, one of the officers steps up. What does he say? Verse 21, Abishai answers to the king. He says, shall not Shimeel be put to death for this because he's cursed the Lord's anointed. So this guy's wanting to kill him. David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you shall put to me this day as an, ad, as an adversary to me? What does he mean by that, by the way? He says, you sons of Zariah, these are sons of priests. These were zealous guys who looked for any opportunity to, to, to do anything to protect you. I mean, like, Brant, you're a loyal one like that. If I said, you know, by the way, somebody just told me what they told me, Brant's like, I'm going to take him outside right now. And so I, I would be like, Brant, calm down, you know. You sons of Cosgrove, you know. So you should be, as an adversary to me, shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you're not gonna die. And the king gave him his oath, gave him his word. He looks at Shimei, Shimei's on the ground. Here's an officer, just let me take off his head. I'll kill him. And David says, you're not gonna die. Get up, go. Remember Ziba, I mentioned Ziba. Ziba, give you a little background. Here we are. Ziba was assigned to a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of King Saul. He was royalty. That was the king before David. Mephibosheth should have been killed when David became king. But he didn't kill him. Not only did he let him live, he gave him a palace to live in. And he told Ziba, you're going to take care of him. Well, a little background history, Ziba went to go with David. And when Ziba was with David, 
David says, where's Mephibosheth? This is, by the way, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel here. He says, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba's like, oh, yeah, he didn't want to come. He's loyal to Absalom. He's loyal. Man, he's, he's with your son. Well, David heard this, and it broke his heart. So when he got back, Ziba's outside, but Mephibosheth is walking forward. Not walking, sorry, he's lame. He's being brought forward. Watch the condition. This is a little unusual for us to hear, but so here it is, verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? This is a good question. Mephibosheth, keep in mind, his beard is grown out. He says, no, not trimmed his beard. I couldn't find one commentary, by the way, that, it, that broke that down. Nobody trimmed their beard back then. When you grew it, you grew it. You was, you're not allowed to trim it. But he didn't wash his feet, which would doesn't sound like anything to us, but if you're lame, it's a first point of presentation. This would have been, his feet would have been very pronounced and being seen, and so you'd have taken care of it. He let everything go, not bathing, saying he was mourning for David. And so he's brought in, and what David says here is remarkable. You're the king of Israel. You're the commander of of a massive army, evaluating the strength of all your men, And who do you miss? A lame man. A guy who could do nothing for you in battle. And he looks at him and he says, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? 26. He answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. He's talking about Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I might ride on it and go with the king. If your servant is lame, he has slandered your servant to my Lord the King. But my Lord the King is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. Watch what he says in verse 28. For all my father's house were doomed men to death before my Lord the King. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the King? What he's basically saying is this. My brothers and my dad, they all fought against you. And guess what? They're all dead. I should have been killed. And you had mercy on me. Remember, he was dropped as a baby. He was being rushed out of the house, dropped as a baby, injured his legs, and was lame. He said, you should have killed me, but you didn't. And not only that, you gave me a palace to live in. Why would I ever second guess you? He says, David, I would never have abandoned you. I would have never have left you. But whatever you do, you're right in doing it. And the king said to him, Watch this. He says, this is interesting. He says, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided. When he says here, why speak any more of your affairs? He's basically saying to him, don't bother me with your family drama. Do you know what I just went through? I mean, I had a son that was killed, a son who raped a, a daughter, and another son of mine who kicked me out of Israel, and now he's dead, even against the orders of my generals. He says, basically, don't be talking to me like this. I've decided, you and Ziba, you're going to divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take it all, since my lord, the king, has come safely home. Now, a little backstory, we have no idea who told the truth. Remember, Ziba, when he was with David, was going, man, Mephibosheth, yeah, he's, he took the other side. Now Mephibosheth is telling him, no, Ziba left me. I couldn't even mount a donkey. I couldn't get out of here. I couldn't take care of myself. 
David, in his rage, when he thought Mephibosheth abandoned him, gave all the land to Ziba. And so now he says, I don't know who to believe. Ziba, you have half, and Mephibosheth, you have half. My opinion goes to Mephibosheth. Did you see his answer? Even when he was given everything, he said, Mephibosheth just said, take it all. It's okay. Now, next up, (laughs) here comes an interesting fellow. They're at the banks of a river. To give you a little idea, this guy, um, verse 31, his name is Barzillai, right? Barzillai is a wealthy man. If you had wealth in those air, that time and day, you ran the show when it came to transportation. You've heard or heard of Henry B. Plant. Tampa is very, well, we should all be very happy because of H.B. Plant. He's the one who pretty much got Tampa off the map. He was a wealthy industrialist and railroad magnate who brought a train system down to Tampa and landed at a hotel that was now known as University of Tampa, beautiful building. But that was only a hub and a place for the people to board a ship and a, and a ferry, the ferries that would go to St. Pete, or a ship that would take you to Key West and to Cuba and to all of South America. He owned the transportation. Flagler had the other side of the coast of, of, of Florida. So when you are wealthy, you own the transportation system. This man is a very, very wealthy man. He's 80 years old, brings that up quite often in this. You have to remember, these are harsh times. 80, would, I mean, you're talking a 40 or 50-year-old would have been equivalent to, you know, living the life of a 70 or 80-year-old. Can you imagine what an 80-year-old man has seen with no medical care, no, the, the, the rough conditions of living the way they did? This wealthy man who owns the ferry, the system that's going to ferry people across the River Jordan, comes down to meet the king. Here he is. Now Barzai come down from Roglim, wherever that is, and he went on to, with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Manaheim, for he was a very wealthy man. And so let's stop right here for a second. David is grateful for this man. This man has taken care of him. Whenever David's men would move into a region, if they were being pursued or they were pursuing someone, this man ordered his men, his servants to feed them. This man now goes down to David to make sure he can use all the ferry system to take him across the Jordan. David is grateful for this man. This man is... Um, uh, is he's going to shine here in a sense of selflessness here in a second. The king said to Barzillai, I want you to picture this in your mind. He says, why don't you come over with me? Don't just stay here. Come over with me. I'll provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord my king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? So um, let's stop right here and think. This is an honorable man. This is not like, I always joke around at 
here at Creekside, we have, our 80-year-olds are like a youth group, for crying out loud. We have more energy. I've never, we have the, had the greatest influx of those in their 80s who brought an energy and a life in, in our church. It's amazing. Different time, different day. You know, you all who are in your 80s know that when you were children, 80s was, it was, it was a different decade. And now, this man says, I can't. Uh, you, for taking you a short distance, you want to take me to Jerusalem and live in a palace? I can't enjoy that food. I can't even taste what I eat now. You know, are you kidding me? I'm not, you, the singers, I can't even hear. I can't even see. No, don't worry about it. I appreciate it, but thank you. But he's smart. But he says, but wait a minute. And he points to this guy who, cue the logo, luckiest man in old Israel. He looks over and says, um, yeah, why don't you take him? Here, look with me at verse uh, 38. It says, um, of 37, I'm sorry. Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with the Lord, my, my Lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. In verse 38, and the king answered him, Chimham, you shall go over with me, and I'll do for him whatever seems good to you. And all you desire of me, I will do for you. So the man with the unluckiest name in all of Israel becomes the luckiest man in all of Israel. Chimham is now, walk. Like, think about it. This guy walks down to the River Jordan just serving his, we think he's his son, but we don't know. He's serving his dad or a man who's like his dad. And next thing you know, he's getting on a ferry, going to live in a palace for the rest of his life just because of the gracious is king. The king is in a good mood. The king, I mean, the king, he's been, he's been, it's everything like uh, about the mood of somebody who's judging. Like I, I was in court with someone and man, I mean, this judge was in a rotten mood. And I mean, you know, he started out kind of gruff and then he just got worse. And I remember sitting next to the guy who was going to go up before him and, and the, 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 somehow the defendant just ticked off the judge. And the judge is ripping him, and he brings up the next case, and he's giving him maximum. He's next case maximum. And I'm looking at my buddy like, you're toast. I mean, this is bad. This is not good. And then all of a sudden, this other guy gets up there. It was like a, like a comedy show for some reason. And the judge just got in a better mood. And you could sense the whole courtroom like, oh, thank God. You know, this guy's in a better mood. King David is... He's given this continuous grace, even to the point of like, thanks for the fairy ride. Come live with me the rest of your days. This, he's off the chart in grace and mercy. Now, we're going to read these last few verses, 39 through 42. And here, I don't want to lose you because it's going to look confusing if you're walking to this not knowing what's going on. Think factional politics. Infighting is about to happen. I mean, we just ended with David giving away so much. All is well. King of Israel, again. How many times have you been through this? Uh, the, the back and forth over battling for power. Here he is. He's back. Everything's going to go great. He's appointed the, the military commander of his former enemy as his military commander. That should do it. Well, watch what happens in verse 39. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, 
And Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. When it says all the people of Judah and half the people of Israel brought the king on his way, they, everybody wants to go with David back to Jerusalem. David was not going to go to Jerusalem until he was invited back. He wasn't going to just go retake it. He's like, I'm not going to go back there until they appreciate it. So Judah, they're coming up like, we got you. And then Israel pours out a ton of people. They're like, we're going to march with you. And they keep marching, verse 41. Then the king, then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? What do they mean by that? Some of your versions may read, by the way, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, kidnapped you? What do they mean by that? Basically, there doesn't need to be this many men of Judah following the king. The, the, the people of Israel are going, we're with you. Sure, just send a few. They have tens of thousands of people. They're trying to, they're trying to show off. They're gloating. They're, they're put in the middle of our face. And so they're saying this. Why is that necessary? Verse 42, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Because the king is our close relative. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense or has he given us any gift? So basically, they, they go right back to him like, why are we here? Because he's one of us and you're not. So, so now both sides are accusing each other of being arrogant. Last verse, verse um, 43. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. What does that mean? 10 tribes out of 12. We have 10 tribes. We have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of men of Israel. Which basically means they were screaming at each other. Basically, it says the men of Judah were louder and angrier than, than the other men. So this tribal faction is not over. This is a precursor to what's going to happen next week. Just when you think, huh, wow, we're done. We can go to a book in the New Testament. No, it's not over yet. Next week, there's going to be an upheaval, an up, uprising. Again, something's going to happen, all because of selfishness and agenda, which brings me to a couple of thoughts in this scripture. When I was talking to Shale earlier, I was like, Shale, what do I land on? Because as much as we walk through verse by verse, we want to give application, kind of, you know, what can we take away from this? And I'm thinking, wow, there's, you know, can you imagine that Amasa guy? Can you imagine him, the commander of an army that was trying to kill David, is now David's commanding army general? Wow, that's a great picture, right? Well, I'll go that route. I mean, this is a man who deserved nothing and was given everything. Wow, that may be able to go there. Maybe we'll talk about selfishness, about what I, with all the people that followed Absalom. Think about all these people that followed Absalom. Why would they have done that? Because Absalom looked enticing. And keep in mind, we all follow an Absalom. Every one of us follow things. We follow a a place of wealth, of even health. We we follow a place of, of popularity and acceptance. We follow anything that will replace God as long as it's telling us exactly what we want and need we feel we need to hear. And guess what happens? We will follow it till it dies. Till either it's taken from us or we die to it. We follow that Absalom. 
And everything does die, except for God. Everything does, but we follow. And so, so many times in our life, there's Absaloms in our life that are leading us to certain thoughts. But I would say this. I think the thing that hit me was this. This was a picture of the gospel. This was absolutely a picture of God saying, do you remember that point where it said, um, it was the end of 18? He said, my son, my son Absalom. David said, I would have died instead of you. That was the Lord's anointed king. Now I want you to take that to the New Testament. Think of the Lord's anointed, the very son of God who came down here to do what? To die for those who rebelled against him and still rebel. That's an incredible love. But yet what happens when we hear the message of the gospel that Jesus died for us, that Jesus has, has brought us out of a place of darkness? What's the first thing we do when we go to our selfish sense? We look for an Absalom to be our king. We look for an Absalom to hold over us. But it doesn't just end there with God sending his son to die for us and to give us new life. There's something else that I want to encourage you with this. Mephibosheth to me is a picture of you and I. David, I'm sure it, when he was on the run in this little fortress city, was thinking, where's this man? Where's this person? Where's this commander? Why didn't this army follow me? Why didn't this nation that I rescued follow me? Who did he miss? Of all people, a lame man. And when he looks at him, he says, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? He didn't bring him in to discipline him. He didn't bring him in to chastise him. He brought him in to say, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? Why weren't you with me? When I felt I was abandoned, when nobody was around me, why weren't you there? And to think, this was not the time now where somebody who's lame would be hopefully loved on and accepted in a way. This was a harsh time when lame people were banished to begging. There were no aid societies and hospitals to help and, and, and abide. But the king of Israel, who had everything, wanted the company of a man who had nothing to offer. And I'm sure in Mephibosheth's mind, he had to be thinking, I don't, why do you even love me? I should be dead, but you gave me life. I should be starving, but you gave me a palace and you gave me servants. And I should be condemned, but what happened? I should be judged. And you miss me. That is absolutely the love of our father who looks at you and he says, where have you been? Why aren't you here? I've looked for you. I've wanted you. In, in our minds, what's the first thing we say? Well, I go, man, I didn't go to this because I don't know, I don't know much about scripture. I don't go here because well, I'm shy. I don't God, I can't talk to you or pray to you because I, I feel like I haven't read enough Bible or, or I haven't lived a good enough life to pray. I'm lame. I'm lame. I'm lame. Everybody else is walking. I'm lame. And God says, you were missed. I just wanted you. I wanted you to be with me. I wanted you to talk to me. I want you to be next to me. So that's what happens when we are finally able to drop our Absaloms who own us 
Say, no matter whatever we go through, no matter whatever holds us down, become our message. If it's fear, let that become your message. If it's your health, let that become your message. No matter what your circumstance may be, let that become your message. Because God says, in the midst of everything that's ever held you down and has made you lame, I am the one who will write your message. It's not over. Ephesians 3.20 says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I'm not picking on you, Dave and Eunice Crompton, but I enjoyed my visit to your home the other day. And I walked in the home and I pulled up expecting what I was going to get. I drove up to a modest home you've lived in for decades. And I walked up to this orderly, beautiful home. Everything was so clean and in order. And then the music was, and the kitchen was playing some soft music. And you showed me your library and said, here's some books. And you just named all the authors. And I just walked through and I, and there was just this peace. And I sat down at this table with a tablecloth and gardening shears outside the window. I mean, this, this home, this is like the, the perfect peaceful home. You just felt the Lord in there, you know? And, and there on a table, eating on fine china, you know, you're serving china and sliced tomatoes and tuna salad. And Eunice, you're saying, oh, it's just we're simple people. And this simple, beautiful home was a home. And we walked through your life. What it was like when you served in the Air Force, retired from the Air Force, things you saw. And then they became missionaries to work with, with the military. But it was the most profound thing at the end. As we sat there, and I could have sat there all day, you said something so profound. Because I said, you know, I wish people, I wish everyone could come in here and see this and just sense the love that you have. And they said, you know, we live in a box now. Like, we can't get out as much. He said something profound. He said, but we pray. And that is our ministry. And we pray. The things you were saying, could, you would only know if you read through our entire prayer email that I'm sure a lot of people just, even I sometimes don't read deep enough. And I remember getting up out of that home, about the leaves, and I just remember thinking, wait a minute. I said, would you, can I give you a, some names to pray for people that I love that I would you pray and you went and got your journal and you wrote down these names and you're writing them and with every swipe of a pen on a letter it was like thunder because the power of prayer the power at work within you because of Jesus is real but on record if somebody were to look at the paper and think, what can an 88-year-old man bring into church? He can bring in the power of God. In what conventional life and wisdom would say, you're at the end. You've seen the glory. No. God says, I want to be near you. I want you with me. And I desire every bit of you right here, right now. And when God changes and gives you the ability to say, God, 
I want you in everything you are to be with me right now. That is a power beyond reckoning. That is a power, a testament of what God can do. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for tonight, today. And, and Lord, the power of your word that speaks to us, the Lord teaching through your word is one thing, living your word is another. And Lord, I just pray that you were to give us the ability to see that we are all Mephibosheths. That, Father, we are all lame at some degree. And, Lord, that you would want us to be with you. You would want us to come alongside you. Father, we are in awe of that. And, Lord, we just pray that you would just um, you give each one of us the, the knowledge and the desire to just come alongside that there's nothing that prevents us, nothing that holds us back. Whatever we have done or whatever we have said or whatever we feel that pre- prohibits us from ever being close to you, Lord, is what qualifies us for, wanting, for you wanting to be with us. And for that, we say thank you. And Father, for all the things that we don't know what to do, for the power at work within us, we can't even imagine the great things you accomplish beginning with ourselves. And Father, for anyone in here who comes here not knowing you as Savior, as the Lord of their life, I would just pray that they would speak to those who administer the best to them, the person who brought them, the person who brought them here. But if they have any questions and want to learn more, they could ask one of us. Lord, thank you for saving us, not only from the sinful life that we wrecked with, but saving us from our own self, our own condemnation, the judgment of a world, and saving us to you, to the greatness of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.